It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli. I guess. Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Streaming live from Stony Point, this is HudsonRiverRadio.com, your local Rockland County station. Well, here we are back again for another fascinating show. Um, I do want to point out that uh, due to scheduling, this is pre-recorded. So if you're going to Facebook Live to comment with us, don't think we are ignoring you. We are not there. <laughs> right. We are not live. <laughs> we are not live. So I'm here with uh, Michael Warden. And we have a fabulous guest tonight. Let me uh, introduce him before we we bring him up. Um, Michael Schratt, a private pilot and military aerospace historian, has been investigating UFO encounters for over 25 years. Between 2008 and 2009, Michael meticulously reviewed a minimum of 50,000 cases. Let me say that again. He reviewed 50,000 cases, which were preserved at the QFOS archives in Chicago. That's the Center for UFO Studies. Uh, Michael's recreated dozens of highly credible UFO cases by the use of drawings, illustrations, and commissioned artwork. Many of these include USO, unidentified submerged object, objects, actual extraterrestrial encounters, and pre-UFO history cases, which have never seen the light of day. So that is his official um, bio. I just need to add that um, I've had the pleasure of working with him for years. He is an impeccable researcher. He has been incredibly generous with his work, and I am lucky enough to call him my friend. So, Michael Schratt, welcome. Linda, thank you so much for allowing me to be a part of your program. Oh, so happy to have you. Uh, we've been trying for a while, but as you're in California, and we are not, <laughs> it has been difficult. So um, I hope you didn't have to juggle your schedule too much. Anything for you, Linda. <laughs> thank you. Now, you have a very interesting agenda of uh, what you'd like to speak about tonight. Um, would you like to tell us about this? Sure, sure. Uh, kind of as you mentioned in the bio there, uh, living in the Chicagoland area, it gave me the opportunity to be within about a one-hour drive striking distance to KIFOS, which, as you mentioned, is the Center for UFO Studies. Uh, Jalen Hynek passed away in 86, but cases continue to roll in long after uh, Mr. Hynek passed away. So I ended up uh, being within about an hour's drive and just started going through these cabinets and they have about 14 to 15 different cabinets there pulling out and these things were just cram packed <laughs> with files you could not put almost a razor blade between these manila <laughs> folders so it was a function of taking out each one opening up the file reviewing the material and trying to find out if there was a sketch illustration or detailed drawing to go with the two or three page report. If it had a really good uh, drawing and a report, then I felt it had enough meat on the bones to take it to the next level. And that's kind of how I began this QFOS archive uh, crusade. <laughs> that is a crusade. Um, you must have felt like a kid in a candy store with all of those files. I, I absolutely did, Linda. And the weird thing about it is there was nobody there. 
nobody showed up out of the years that I went in there. Nobody took advantage of that resource. And I just don't know why. Oh, well, because a lot of people don't want to be bothered is, uh, I think, the unfortunate truth. Um, you're one of the ones who does the boots on the ground to go through. That takes hours and hours of dedication. Uh, Mike mm-hmm. and I have both done a lot of different types of historic research, and um, uh, we have had piles of, of files in front of us, and you just knuckle down <laughs> and go through it. Um so we share that same passion. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And um, Michael and I met uh, years ago, I believe it was at the UFO Congress in uh, Arizona, which is a right. fabulous conference. And um, we met over our other shared passion of Hudson Valley UFOs. Mm-hmm. Um, but tonight, we, you have a list of fascinating cases you'd like to discuss. Absolutely. Let's go ahead and start on the first one here, Linda. Sounds good. So I want to take the audience back to March 23rd, 1966. This is near Temple, Oklahoma. It's 5.05 a.m. And a man by the name of Eddie Laxton, L-A-X-S-O-N, he's an electronic engineer at Shepard Air Force Base. So it's 5.05 in the morning. He's going to work. It's still kind of dark out. And he's heading westbound on Highway 70, just south of Temple, Oklahoma. And his headlights capture something parked on the road at about a 45-degree angle, Linda. And what it's described as is kind of a tapered torpedo-shaped craft. It's about 75 feet across. It's 8 feet tall. It also resembles a fish or a perch is the way it was described. Okay. So he, he gets out of his car. He's kind of walking toward this thing. And, you know, to describe it even further here, because we want to make sure we pin down all the details, it looks as though it had a bubble canopy on the front of the craft that looked directly like it was taken off a World War II vintage B-26 bomber. Hmm. As, as you go further aft on the craft, it had these four beaming spotlights that he saw. And then on the top of the craft, there was this stinger that swept back to what looked like a ball or a probe at the end of this thing. So now, like a tail, kind of? Like mm-hmm. a tail, yeah, mm-hmm. like, a, like a long tail with a ball at the end of it. And I should mention that I've now got about 12 separate cases of these quote-unquote prongs slash protrusions coming out of these craft. It keeps on showing up, Linda, again and again mm-hmm. and again. Now, just under this prong-shaped appendage that comes out of this craft on the starboard side of the vehicle because he pulled up to this thing there was another three foot diameter porthole that was divided into four equal pie segments just aft of that particular porthole were written in black letters tl4768 written down the side of this craft doesn't sound alien to me (laughs) i know i know now at the very end of this craft there was what looked like two horizontal stabilizers. But if you look at the scale of the craft in proportion to these horizontal stabilizers, Linder, they're way too small to be effective aerodynamically. Hmm. So I'm thinking this is something else we're dealing with. Now, this whole craft was propped up about three foot off the pavement by what looked like these lunar landing gear legs. And then there was a door with kind of an air stair coming down and uh, Eddie noticed that there was basically a five foot ten human looking figure that had these two piece green mi- military fatigues he was wearing, and he was wearing a baseball cap with the bill turned up. He said he was shining a flashlight down on the bottom of this craft like he was looking or investigating something. Mm-hmm. Now, when this military man saw that he was being observed by Eddie Laxon, he immediately ran up this ladder, he closed this door, and then, according to Project Blue Book, and this is Project Blue Book case number 10270, so anyone can go to the National Archives in Washington, D.C. and confirm this case for themselves. What he heard next was a high-pitched drilling noise. This thing levitated off the ground about 50 feet. It stood there for about 30 seconds, Linda, and then next thing that happened was it departed like a spark on a grinding wheel and made no sonic boom whatsoever. Wow. 
Wow. So, Mike, Mike Warden, what do you make of this case? What does your cop spidey sense tell you? <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm just picturing I'm, I'm, what this craft looks like here. It's amazing. I'm wrapped up in this story. It's like fascinating. Yep. Yep. I've never heard this one before. Oh, yeah. The the fact of the the tail number or the the letter yeah. designation there um, is just so, Michael. What would you say would then? It's not aerodynamic as you noticed. Um, what would you say is the propulsion? Is the what's <laughs> yeah, levitating this craft? That's the thing. Well, we we see the same type of stinger coming off the 2004 Nimitz case, where Commander David Fravor uh, basically tried to do an intercept on a Tic Tac UFO, which had these L-shaped prongs coming off of it. And I've got a case in 1967 from Pennsylvania with the same L-shaped prongs coming hmm. off the top of it. This is decades prior to the 2004 intercept. Sure, sure. And this is... This is what I absolutely love is, you know, somebody who has the depth of knowledge you do, you don't just tell a story, you have all of these different examples to to corroborate it to, you know, are we proving something? I, I don't think we can say that. But boy, is there some evidence that maybe a little reverse engineering or something might have been going on at some point? Linda, there is so much paperwork on this case. When I visited the uh, David Marler collection not too far from Albuquerque, New Mexico, uh, David helped me obtain the actual Blue Book report, uh, which you have a copy. It's about mm -hmm. a 15-page report. He even included the front template page. And I'll just read this. Uh, this, is a, this is in uh, hand-drawn pencil lettering here. Uh, noise like high-speed drill. They actually wrote that on the front page of this wow yeah wow. so you have the original yeah. material there yeah this is copies of the original material mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. whatever happened with mr laxon any uh, uh I, I don't know what happened to him but i also know from the other reports that a lot of truck drivers they saw it too so we've got secondhand okay. independent confirmation okay and, and michael michael i have a question yes what what was project blue book's determination uh, um, they, called, they called it an unknown. Unknown, okay. Unknown. Oh, so it's one of the 701 they, uh, unknowns. They didn't okay. try to say it was Venus, huh? <laughs> no, they didn't say it was Venus. <laughs> or swamp gas. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> That's fabulous. And uh, now, do you have a site where you, you have the most remarkable illustration of this? Um, do you have a site where people can go to view these illustrations at all? Uh, I don't right now, but within, within the next two weeks ago, I am working with my good friend Tom Bogan, who has to get credit for doing a lot of these illustrations. We are going to put together a, a website where all of this thing, uh, all of these illustrations can be seen, can be downloaded. And we took the time to scan in all the reference material as well. So you've got backup to go with wow. it. Wow. Wow. Oh, oh ju just to answer your question, uh, under the subheading 10 conclusion, it says here, this case is carried as unidentified since after evaluation of the available information, no concrete explanation is possible. There we go. Wow. Yes. Wow. Of course, they probably knew the explanation, but they weren't going to <laughs> yeah. tell us for sure. Fantastic. Right. Am I saying this correct? Calusa, California? Calusa, California. You got it, Linda. You got it. Now, I really like this case. Now, this one was pulled from the QFOS archives. This is September 10th, 1976. And so we just kind of picture the scene here. The primary eyewitness is watching TV in his house. It's about 11.30 p.m. All of a sudden, the TV goes out blank totally dead stop goes out concurrently the air conditioning unit goes out as well so what he does is he walks outside of his uh, home there and he looks for the circuit breaker box thinking that something might have popped or the circuit breaker uh, circuit breaker went off he pulls open the panel everything seems to be fine there but then linda he discovers something very strange the hair on his arms, the hair on his chest, and the hair on the top of his head starts standing up vertically, and then mm. the hair on his head starts crackling. 
Oh. He looks he looks up and he's looking at the bottom of a 140 foot diameter disc shaped craft. On the top of this craft, it has this lemon juice squeezer, Linda, with these uh, beveled con concave uh, arcs along the edges. Mm-hmm. And then there's what look like these six foot diameter conduit cables with frayed ends at the bottom of them. So now wow. we've got two cases of these prong slash protrusions. Mm-hmm. Near the outer circumference of this craft, there were these prongs with these L-shaped hooks on the bottom of them. Now, when, when these conduit pipes retracted into the bottom of the craft, these these uh, L-shaped hooks, they retracted about 90% into the bottom of the craft, but not the remaining 10%. Immediately when that happened, he noticed that two of these lantern lights popped out on either side of the craft. And on the left of this whole event, there were two more smaller craft that looked like they were beaming down lights to the nearby uh, power cables. So we've got 500,000 volt power cables and they were turning cherry red, Linda. Wow. That'll make your hair stand up and start to crackle if they're uh, pulling that kind of juice out of the lines. Yep, yep. So what happened next is he went back to the house. He woke up his two kids and his wife. They went to the back room. They pulled open the blinds, and they saw the main craft. They t- they saw two smaller craft, and they were pulling power, what looked like pulling power off these cable lines. Wow. They were turning cherry red. And then something very strange happened. That very large craft went from a dead standstill to the foothill mountains in the background over 20 miles away a dead standstill to over 20 miles away in less than two seconds and then this thing came back in less than two seconds so here's the question we should ask who had the technology back in 1976 to travel that amount of distance in under two seconds and Mm -hmm. then repeat it without creating no sonic boom whatsoever right and not uh turning the occupants into soup Correct. So at this point, the primary witness said, you know what? I've had enough of this. I'm done. So he piled his family. He collected everybody uh, together. He piled his family into their truck. Now, this is it might, this is not going to be visible to the uh, listening audience, but here's what it looks like outside the window. He piled everybody into his truck. Uh, he did not turn on the headlights as he put this thing in reverse. And then he started, the report says he started going 90 miles an hour down the road trying to get away from this thing. And this large 140-foot diameter dish-shaped craft started chasing his truck down this road. (laughs) It's all in the report. So off to the left, this craft appears, and then it pops over to the right. It comes back one more time to the left, and by that time, they're a mile down the road. They get to the neighbor's house. They screech on the brakes. He gets out of the car. The two children get out of the car. The wife gets out of the car. They start on. slamming on the door of their uh, local neighbor. The two neighbors come out. So we've got about um, seven eyewitnesses that actually saw the large craft and the two smaller craft depart the vicinity. Hmm. And that's essentially this Calusa case. Right. So what what is your um, idea, your theory about uh, drawing this power from the power lines? We hear this all the time about... Uh, these mysterious craft hovering over high-tension wires and things. Exactly. Um, I think it's interesting to, to note that the fact that um, the primary eyewitness identified kind of an electrostatic charge mm-hmm. around the vicinity of, of where this was and the fact that it was making these power lines turn cherry red indicates that this is a CE2 case now. It has physical effects. Oh, for sure. Yes. If my hair was standing up and started to crackle, I think I'd, I think I'd hit the deck uh, thinking I was about to get struck by lightning. So there had to be an enormous amount of energy in the air. Yep. And we're seeing this again with these prongs and protrusions. Mm-hmm. This is uh, like case number two. Now I've got, there is some reason. It, it has to do with the components. It has to do with the propulsion system. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, now, if you do look at the components of a Tesla coil, 
you've got the primary windings, you've got the secondary windings, and then you've got this uh, kind of a, a spark gap on top. That's what we're seeing in a number of these craft with these, like on the first ca- case from 1966, we're seeing this ball at the end of this large stinger. This could be what we're looking at when you look at the components of a Tesla coil or other these um, high voltage electrical charges. Hmm. Amazing. I'd love to be able to get the um, power company's usage report from that night. Has no any- doubt. Yeah, that, that would be rather telling. Mike, do you have any uh, – are you speechless on this one? <laughs> yeah, you know, the viewer – the listeners can't see what he was showing me on Skype. It's um, It's chilling. Because yep. I'm just thinking to myself, if I come out of my house at night and see that, um, I think I would put my family in the car, too, and, yeah. and head, <laughs> head for the high hills or something. For sure. They, they for were sure. running for their lives. They were that yeah. horrified. Right. Yeah. Right. Wow. Um, you have anything to top that now? <laughs> <laughs> That's one of my favorite cases. Yeah, Which, that that yeah, is remarkable. 19, yep. That that those physical effects. Um, that is not somebody's imagination for sure. And and you said six or seven witnesses as well. Yep. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, so let's move on to the next case. This is Maracibo, Venezuela, December twenty sixth, nineteen seventy two. Now, this is a case that I did pull from the QFOS archives. And looking at the uh, International UFO Reporter, that's the internal QFOS newsletter, looking at all those, I don't think that this case has ever even been talked about. Wow. I've never seen that drawing before. And as soon as I saw it, I'm like, wow, we're talking Apollo program era case here that's never even been talked about. Uh, well, so let's talk about yep, it now. Yep. So it's, it's 8 p.m. Uh, the three witnesses are the husband, the wife, and the daughter. They're on the top floor of their 14th floor apartment complex. They're looking toward the east, expecting to see a commercial airliner come past them. And what they ended up seeing is this orange-colored flame that they thought was one of the engine nacelles on Mm -hmm. on an airliner that might have caught fire or something. So that's what they were expecting to see. As this thing got closer, it diverted from its original flight path and then went horizontal and then came back down followed its original flight path and as they got closer this was no aircraft this was a 50 foot long elliptical shaped craft that kind of tapered back to the aft end and was cut off with a uh, hot butter knife you could say Hmm. it kind of had a square back to it now all along from the one-third leading edge of this craft, there was what looked like these cast iron exhaust ports. And each exhaust port had this electrical discharge S-shaped flame that was cut off sharply at a 90-degree angle. On the bottom of this craft, it looked like two opposing half-hemispherical insulators. Now, on, on the inside of these insulators, there were two opposing electrodes. This is what these electrodes look, with a continuous electrical spark going between these hmm. two electrodes. Now, they got within 350 feet of this thing as it passed by, so they got a very close look at this. And the, the um, overall length, excuse me, what was the uh, over- about About 50 feet in length okay. and about 40 feet across. And as this thing passed by, uh, they could see it disappearing over the horizon about 30 miles away. But what happened next is very interesting because another craft identical to this one came from the eastern horizon and got closer to them again, just like the first one. So there were two craft associated with this particular case. By this time, the husband asked his daughter to go next door to the neighbor's house and get a pair of binoculars, which she did. She brought that up to the husband, and he looked at this thing through binoculars and got a very good look at this craft. Now, these these flames, they they were not flames as we know them. They look like electrical discharges, and they look like lasagna noodles and (laughs) kind of purplish in color. Mm-hmm. almost a maroon purplish in color. And he also stated that when this spark uh, get mechanism was in operation, there was smoke coming off, but the smoke did not 
you know, like trail behind the craft. It stayed with the craft as oh, it Oh, that's by. interesting, as if there was some sort yep. of field that captured it, the exhaust. Correct. That's correct. That's correct. It was lighting up the entire bottom of the craft itself. And so that's essentially the 1972 case. Wow. Wow. Well, I um, when you sent me the list of cases, I tried looking it up and I see now why I didn't find anything because it, it had not yet seen the light of day. Um, in right. the same, now you pronounce that Maracaibo? I think so. Maracaibo. Yes. I'm not sure the pronunciation. Okay. But, um, yep. I did find, are you, are, I have to interject this because I love the old cases. Are you familiar with the uh, Scientific American article of December 18th, 1886? Uh, from, I am not. You found um, the same one I did, Linda. <laughs> oh, we're on the same page here. Yes. Um, this, I think, uh, because, you know, what's going on in this small town in Venezuela? Um, well, in 1886, uh, a family uh, heard a loud humming noise, and they described okay. a vivid, dazzling light that um, they were terror-stricken. Um, this light came down into their, into their home. Uh, they began vomiting. They had all sorts of irritation and swelling, Nine days later, they got these large black blotches when their skin peeled off and their hair wow. fell out. Wow. And also the uh, trees, nine days later, all of the trees around the house suddenly withered. We're talking 1886. So what is going wow. on in that <laughs> in that town? Um <laughs> You know, wow. clearly, clearly radiation poisoning. Um, yes. That account, that account was fascinating, too, because it was it was addressed to Scientific American with the interest of electrical uh, peculiarities. Right. Um, yes, and that, exactly. You know, the sensation of heat, although they, it was noted, too, that there was no damage to the house. So the house didn't sustain any heat damage, no fire damage, nothing. Just like the, the people and, the, you know, the trees, anything that had... Um, I guess a living organism. Basically. Right. Right. So, um, so in this Maracaibo, Maracaibo, um, somebody hopefully will tell us how to pronounce that. Um, we have this unbelievable close sighting of two highly yes. charged electrical craft. And then, um, about a hundred years earlier, what was going on there? Well, um, I see we do need to take a quick break, and we will come back to this fascinating list. We know that getting up in the morning is not easy. News, weather, traffic, bah! Join Neil Briscoe and me, Brian Horowitz, for some mindless trivia and useless facts every weekday at 7 a.m. Coffee first on HudsonRiverRadio.com. Hey, Yvonne, do you know what Tony the Rooster is telling you? Hey, Allison, of course I do. That's right. Tony wants you to join us on Mondays at 6 p.m. for Getting Dirty on HudsonRiverRadio.com. You'll learn all about gardening, local farming and farmers, and why it's cool to get dirty. Join us Mondays at 6, because it's awesomely awesome. Attention all small businesses in Rockland County and the Hudson Valley. HudsonRiverRadio.com wants to give you the chance to advertise on the air at the lowest rates ever offered. For a limited time, you can reach over 26,000 listeners per month for as low as $49 per week. HudsonRiverRadio.com will produce your commercial for free and play it in high rotation seven days per week, reaching new customers right here in Rockland County. For more information, please email info at HudsonRiverRadio.com or call the studio at 845 845- Five five three nine six zero nine. That's info at HudsonRiverRadio.com or call the studio at 845-553-9609. This is Travis Walton and you are listening to UFO Headquarters. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? 
I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At ChumbaCasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Welcome back. Um, I, I couldn't wait to get back from that break because we are fortunate enough to have Michael Schratt here on UFO headquarters. And he just is blowing our minds with these cases. Um, so if you don't mind, uh, let's jump right back into the next case. Okay, let's do it. Uh, next case, Mobile, Alabama. February 3rd, 1983, woman is returning home from a dinner engagement around 9 p.m., and she feels and hears this large booming noise. Her whole car starts shaking, so she pulls off to the side of the road, gets out of the vehicle, looks under the vehicle to see that the transmission may have fallen out. That appears to be okay. She gets back in the car. She goes another half mile and off to the right in a clearing she sees a massive, repeat, massive 276-foot-long craft. It's about 70 feet tall. It tapers up as it goes afterward. On the top section, there were these clear transparent panels that had what looked like 5'10 humanoid-looking beings that were wearing these one-piece tight-fitting flight suits. They were oblivious to the primary eyewitness. Uh, just down from that transparent section, there was another window section. Below that, there was a door that was closing from right to left. On the bottom of this door section, there was looked like a black asphalt paved road. And on the left side of that asphalt paved road, there was a wall that had tubes, pipes, and cylinders on it. And so where have we heard this before, right? Huh. We had the tubes, pipes, and cylinders on the Hudson Valley Boomerang 82 to 89. We had the tubes, pipes, and cylinders on the bottom of the Belgium Triangle. That's 1989-1990. Uh, we had the same tubes, pipes, and cylinders, or quote-unquote stacked Lego bricks, on the bottom of the January 5, 2000 case in southern Illinois. So we can see this pattern recognition on all these different cases at different locations and times. Now, on the bottom of this craft, she saw what looked like 24-inch by 24-inch highly polished reflective mirrors that were arranged in a cross-section. On the bottom of these mirrors, there was another gondola that had these same autonomous-looking humanoid figures, hmm. and they were, again, oblivious to the woman below. Now, I should mention that she could see portholes running the entire length of this craft, and when she looked in one of these portholes, it reminded her of a shipping yard with these beams and bulkheads you know, holding this craft together, and the entire craft looked like it had been fastened together by these rivets, she called them. And that's essentially the 1983 case. Wow, so definitely like steel girders. Um, like steel girders. Holding mm -hmm. this yep. together. Mike, any comments on this one? Mike Warden? We have two mics here. Yep. So. <laughs> yeah, so I was just looking at the... He had held the photos up, but the, if you're yep. listening, you can also find those photos are online. And I was actually staring at him as he's explaining this, and you have to go look at the detail on this. Yeah. I mean, it's incredible. You know, so what this, what was seen is just, it's blowing my mind, Linda. And it takes a lot. <laughs> it takes a lot to blow our minds, I think. So this and, was in an APRO bulletin? Yep. This is APRO bulletin, Tucson, Arizona, number two, volume 32. Okay. So people can so, uh, look that up. Now, yep. did she suffer any sort of ill effects or anything from this? She did not this? suffer any ill effects. No. Good. Mm -mm. Good. Yeah. This is, and it is such a bizarre type of shape. It's something, you, you know, you, you think you'd see in, I don't know, Battlestar Galactica. It's, uh, right? right. It's, it is quite bizarre. Wow. It's very different than most. Most things that people describe. Exactly. You know, exactly. So definitely go and, and look that up. Now we're getting to something even more dear to my heart, astronaut sightings. 
Um, yep, let, let's do that. Let's do that. Now, we, we cannot discount the credibility of our astronauts because our, these are military pilots. They're protecting our security here in America. So we, we really should take them to heart. So in 1951, astronaut Gordon Cooper, he, he used to be our Mercury astronaut. He, he became a, a really outspoken uh, UFO witness. He was with his squadron mates at a uh, West German air base in 1951. And for two consecutive weeks, squadrons of these dish-shaped craft with domes on top flew over the air base. And so he decided, you know what? Now this has happened two times. I'm done with this. So he got in one of the F-86s on the base with his squadron mate. They went into a 60-degree angle of attack and were attempting to intercept these craft. Now, I've been told by Daryl Miklos, who is a, a used to be a very good friend of mm-hmm. Gordon Cooper near the, uh, the last remaining years uh, before he passed away, and he's on the show Cooper's treasure. Yes, watch that. I was able that. to interview this mm-hmm. gentleman, and he, he laid it all out for me. He said that they could get to the same altitude of these discs, but trying to actually intercept them was a done deal. Forget about it. Right. They could not mimic the form, fit, and function of these craft because these craft had the capability of stopping on the dime. They could reverse their direction. They could go 1,000 miles an hour and make a 90-degree left-hand Shh. turn, and there's just no way they could intercept them. So no. And this is 1951. 1951. Right. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yep. That is that yep. is fabulous. So, but we're not done with Gordon Cooper. He's uh, no. involved in something even uh, more spectacular. That's correct. So later in 1957, this is at Edwards Air Force Base. They are filming the installation of precision landing equipment when about a 25 foot diameter dish shaped craft hovers over the dry lake bed for about 60 seconds. These three retractable landing gear legs come out. It sits on the dry lake bed about 60 seconds, then levitates off the dry lake bed. These landing gear legs retract into the bottom of the craft, and then this thing departs at a rather rapid rate of speed. And they got the whole thing on film. Hmm. This is what's interesting. They got it all on film. Now, Gordon Cooper originally did not see the beginning part of this encounter, but he did actually witness the craft as it departed. So he did see this. Now, that film was brought into Edwards Air Force Base. It was developed, but they did not make uh, prints. They did not make prints. And an Air Force courier was immediately called in and... It's my understanding that uh, it was handcuffed to his wrist and then put in a briefcase and flown to either Andrews Air Force Base uh, near Washington, D.C. or Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Don't know for sure, but you can also rest assured that if they have these, there has got to be warehouses full of gun camera footage, 8 by 10 glossy black and whites, uh, very good detailed drawings. They've just got to have this in multiple locations. Absolutely. Now, do you, did Edwards have nuclear capabilities? Uh, I don't know. I don't think they would do that because Edwards is more of a, a testing range. So okay. I don't okay. think they had uh, nuclear capabilities based okay. there. Uh, yeah, that that is just amazing. Um, this reminds me of the Nimitz case where they yep. were filming all of these. They had reams of uh, radar data and a helicopter lands on the deck. Some men in civilian clothing come and confiscate everything. So um, same same uh, mode of operation, but, uh, you know, almost 50 years apart. And they're still doing it. They're still doing it. So what have they accumulated up to this point um and i don't think that they would put everything in one location as a single point failure that leads me to believe that they've got multiple warehouses full of this in different locations probably underground in one of these salt mines that they'd be storing this for long periods of time it just makes sense they would do that absolutely absolutely well we actually have another quick break to take 
and uh, short break, and we will be right back for the conclu- the exciting conclusion of this amazing <laughs> list. Take take care. Be right back. While heading to your local green farmer's market on a Saturday morning, tune into the Green Divas radio show at 10 a.m. right here on HudsonRiverRadio.com. And always remember to eat your organic veggies and thank your local farmer. Attention, boys and girls. It's Miss Lorenzo with your morning announcement. Every Wednesday at 6 p.m., you'll join me for Let's Talk History. Students will hear interesting stories and facts about our own Rockland County. We'll have special guests. We'll take your calls and answer your questions. And you'll leave your fidget spinners at home. Let's talk history every Wednesday at 6 p.m. right here on HudsonRiverRadio.com. HudsonRiverRadio.com With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right. Back in not a moment too soon, so we can continue. Uh, Mike Warden, have anything to say about those uh, Gordon Cooper sightings? I really love astronaut pilot sightings because these are credible witnesses and it's so easy for the detractors and the skeptics to discount what the average civilian sees um, because they don't have the expertise. It is so hard to attack their credibility. These are men that are trained to know what they're looking at and know how to pilot. And they know when they see something that is defying what we can do in terms of our aircraft when they see it, they know, you know, I could look at something and sure I, I can assume, but what they're doing is they're giving you, these are expert opinions and you can't discount them. The fact that he's willing to put his name out there before, you know, was willing to go on record with this is fascinating. So. Absolutely. All right. Now this next one, I remember as it was unfolding and um, this is take it away, Michael. Okay, so let's move on to Falcon Lake, Canada. Oh, I thought, excuse me, I thought we were going to the Chicago O'Hare. I do not remember the Falcon Lake, but let's go into it. Okay, (laughs) yep, so it's Falcon Lake, Canada, May 19th, 1967. The primary eyewitness is a man named Stephen Mekalek. This is a very famous case, Mm -hmm. and he was a rock hound. He was interested in minerals and rocks, and so he had his, uh, basically these, very thick leather gloves on. He had two shirts on. He had a cap on, and he also had his welder's helmet on as well with kind of this dark glass fascia plate on on the front of it. So he sees two flying saucers over his head. One of these flying saucers departs. The other one lands in his vicinity, but he didn't even know about it. The, the way he found out about it is he heard some birds that all flew away at the same time, and it caused a very loud kind of a noise as they departed. So he looks over and sees this dish-shaped craft just sitting on the ground. He walks near the craft, and he's looking around this craft, and this door opens up, and a purplish-violet light comes out of the craft, and he hears kind of a language that he cannot determine what it is. So he, he get, looks inside, he, he can't see too much, and then this thing slams shut. This door slams shut. Next thing that happens is this craft starts rotating counterclockwise, and not too far from where the actual door was located, there was what looked like an exhaust port, And this exhaust port had a particular pitch of holes embedded into this screen device. And somehow he got what doctors determined was some type of an exhaust chemical burn. And the imprint that it made on his chest matched the whole location or pitch of this screen. And then this thing departed kind of at a slow rate of speed. Now, immediately, this is... A lot of people don't know this. 
he actually wrote a book about this encounter. It's about a 40-page booklet, and he describes this in great detail, and he said he had to walk all the way home. He was disoriented. He started throwing up, and in a nutshell, that is the Stephen Michalik, uh Falcon Lake case. Yeah, I strongly recommend people uh, Google this to see the imprint. Yes. There's a very famous photo of him lying in bed with this pattern of dots across his abdomen uh, burned into it. And he had health problems for quite some time. That's correct. And th- these things keep... They kept coming back after years. They would reappear and then go away, then reappear the, again. The spots, right, yep. right. Mm-hmm. So something something severe. I mean, it, it's a shame that this happened to him, but how valuable are these physical, you know, physical evidence cases? Right, right. And right. do I recall correctly that um, there was some melt, melted metal later found at the site? Yeah, that's right, Linda. There are little pieces of debris that were recovered as well. Mm-hmm. So definitely, um, this is the Falcon Lake incident, 1967. I, I was so right. pleased to see this on the list because this is one of my favorite cases. Uh, Mike, did you have something you wanted to add to that? No, again, you know, the benefit of knowing in advance what we're going to talk about, I was Googling some of this stuff. And so... You know, he's holding the photos up, but I'm also looking at him. And that photograph of him lying on the, the bed with those burn marks is – that's a chilling photo, you know, for that to leave that type of a mark on him and to, to reoccur years later. Right. And this is not something he could have self-inflicted out in the woods. It's not a random burn pattern. When you look right. at it, it's a rectangle with evenly spaced dots. Um, This was some sort of structural element that uh, now or were they uh, were they sure this was some sort of uh, chemical type burn or was any radiation in the text of the book? They describe it as some type of chemical burn. Okay, okay, fascinating. All right. We only have two left. (laughs) Oh, no, I want to keep going. What are we covering next? Okay, we're going to go to Chicago O'Hare's Airport. There we go. This is April, May 2001. I don't have the exact date, uh, but I have April, May 2001. I interviewed the primary eyewitness who was working at United Airlines at the time, and he was with three other eyewitnesses. So we've got multiple eyewitness Mm -hmm. case. Um, it's early in the morning. It had just rained, so the whole area was damp. And, and he was working at a place called the Ozark Hangar at the time. All of a sudden, he sees this 50-foot diameter dish-shaped craft come near his location. Now, I've got a side-view illustration that was done by Tom Bogan, which is very accurate representation per the eyewitness report. Uh, This thing had about 15 windows on the side of the craft. There was what looked like a a porthole on top that could have been some type of entry hatch. He also said that it had a clear bubble transparent canopy up front that was dark, you know, to the visual eye. He, He couldn't see what was in back of that. So we don't know if there was a cockpit or anything in here. Now, as this thing flew by, it changed its flight path and then started going to the left of his location. Now, while all this is going on, he hears a low frequency electrical, well, I wouldn't call it an electrical humming noise, but he hears kind of a a low rumble off in the far distance. And this is a 747 on takeoff roll heading toward this craft. Wow. This craft passes the active runway just as this 747 takes off because we could have had a mid-air collision. Now, the most interesting part of this entire case And he described this in great detail. He said on the bottom or back part of this craft, it looked like octopus tentacles that were going back and forth like this thing was living. And at the end of these octopus tentacles, there were these spherical balls attached to the end of this thing. Where have we heard that? (laughs) Yeah, that's right. 
So essentially, in a nutshell, that's this case. But we nearly were dealing with a midair collision. This thing passed by an active runway just seconds prior to it, a, a 747 taking off. Right. And so many people saw this. We're talking Chicago O'Hare Airport. If you've ever been there, it is a bustling city of aircraft and how this was dismissed. Now, um, what do you think of the validity of that photograph that seems to show a hole punched in the clouds? Well, that that's that's different than this case, uh, because the, the date on this one is April, May 2001. Oh, so that predates so, this case. I see. Oh, okay. Yeah. My mistake. So there were no. two Chicago O'Hare. Yeah, two different cases, years ah, apart. Years, years apart. apart. Okay, that is... Is remarkable and probably nothing was officially done about no, it nothing was done but i mean again this thing was violating that airspace oh, and big time if this was a if this was a fully loaded 747 we would have been talking about hundreds of fatalities right right remarkable and you spoke to this this uh witness gentleman he originally did a rough sketch for me and then i visited uh him via telephone call years later and i got him to update the drawing and that's where we came up with the detail illustration amazing and this will be on your your website when that is active is there an address you can give people now because by the time this airs there is a (laughs) chance or you don't have the website address yet uh, we're looking at michaelschrat.com, but we don't know for sure. It's okay. going to be something like that. Okay. Yeah. Well, when you do go live, um, of course, if you'll uh, share that with me, I will I will post it on our sites. So, uh, Mike, if you're at the airport taking off in a 747 <laughs> and a saucer-shaped object with tentacles flies by, would you <laughs> – would you ever get on a plane again? <laughs> that may be the, the, the one thing that would get me to stop flying. <laughs> but, but what I'm really looking forward to is his next topic. Yes. I saw this on the list. It made me very excited because you and I have talked about this on the Hudson Valley end. Right. So I can't wait to hear it. <laughs> okay, Michael, take okay. it away. All right. So I guess we should continue then with the mystery airship wave of 1897. Now, sightings originally started in Sacramento, California. They went to Oakland. They went to San Francisco. Uh, The family of the mayor of San Francisco confirmed this report. We've got reports from the West Coast. We've got the reports heading eastbound all the way to um, Ohio. So this is, again, we're talking about hundreds of eyewitnesses. There were hundreds of newspaper clippings. And what these people reported was kind of a gondola-shaped craft. Um, This craft had uh, what looked like wings on either side. It had a vertical rudder at the end. Eyewitness reports indicated that when the lighting was correct, they could see what looked like, you could call them well-dressed inventors. (laughs) They were intellectual inventors. Uh, We also have reports of big black dogs on the top surface of these craft. Okay, that's weird. They, yeah. They were they yeah. were low they were lowering uh anchors down and in many cases these craft landed and eyewitnesses got on board the craft. But the most important thing of all these sightings is this continuous report of these high intensity beaming spotlights that were shining down on the ground like they were looking for something similar to the Hudson Valley boomerang case. Now, so much has been written about this. It's undeniable. These things absolutely did happen. Um, And other researchers have talked about uh, Walter Bosley has done some really good research on this, and he's written a recent book about this. And he he delves into the whole topic of Charles Delshaw, who had made these beautiful color illustrations. Now, within one of these color illustrations, he shows what looks like the propulsion system of these craft, and it bears a striking resemblance to the quote-unquote Nazi bell. It's uh. bell-shaped. It has this helicoil center portion, and it, it is a dead ringer for the bell, which was also called the, the beehive. Mm-hmm. And it had these twin counter-rotating drums with this cerium-525 isotope 
running in between there. And this is somewhat similar to what we're seeing on these Dell shawl um, painting illustrations. Could we be looking at the forerunner of the bell within the drawings of the airship 1897 paintings? Wow. That's uh, Mike. Do you (laughs) you stunning, (laughs) stunning. Although I'm still stuck on what's with the big black dog, um, right. but but still it, the the strangeness factor, the high strangeness here, um, just so compelling. They they report that these things were powered by something called NB gas that could quote unquote negate gravity, <laughs> but when you look at the schematics, we're looking at a bell, we're looking at a possible. Uh, torsion field effect, a liquid mercury vortex engine that's talked about in the Veda texts of India mm-hmm. 2,000 years ago they talk about this. So when you put this all together, it looks like somebody made a propulsion breakthrough like 1895, 1897 period, somewhere in there, somewhere in there. Amazing. Mike, what, what do you say to these bizarre, mysterious airships? Um. I don't know that I have anything I can even add. (laughs) It's, you know, I mean, we've talked about the wave here and, you know, how people thought it was. I like the description about these, you know, the grand inventors or whatever. And, you know, on on the East Coast, it was Thomas Edison, everybody thought, was creating these marvelous airships. And, well, he wasn't, but everybody thought it was. So at a time when there's no aircraft flying anywhere in the world, people are seeing aircraft. And that's to me is compelling arguments that something's going on, whether it's extraterrestrial, whether it was man-made with a technology that was lost, or I don't know what it was. The Nazi belt connection, you know, was it, you know, did someone perfect a, a method of time travel? You know, you can start speculating, I guess, on and on with this stuff. Yeah, that that yeah, the the possibilities are endless, but but as you said, Michael, um, the fact that these did exist is absolutely undeniable. They they absolutely did exist. And what I want to find out is where are these craft? Where are the blueprints? Where are the drawings? Where are the prototypes? We have never even found these craft in a hangar. Where did they disappear? Nobody knows. Exactly. And in fact, in the 1909 wave here in the Hudson Valley, um, one reporter said they come from where we do not know and uh, they go somewhere we, we can't follow, uh, essentially. And the same thing, never a single model, prototype, sketch, blueprint, absolutely nothing, nothing exists. For it. Yet they were seen by thousands of people over decades. Correct. That's correct. Wow. Wow. Well, um this this just flew by. Um, this has been fabulous. I I Absolutely. hope we can have you again with uh, another list of cases. Um, we we have not even scratched the surface. Of yeah, the there's amount of material that we could go into. Probably only another fifty thousand or so to uh, <laughs> to cover. So what's uh, anything coming up for you? You'd like to mention. Uh, I'm going to continue doing cases, uh, working on a number of auto binder cases, making those cases come alive. Uh, those go back to 1600. So we've got a lot of prehistory cases. And mm. I should mention that in, in these particular historical prehistory cases, we could be looking at USOs that are interacting with quantum entanglement where it's from our future, but they're going back in time. They're hovering over Oaxaca, Mexico, and the local people might think that it's something extraterrestrial when in point of fact, it could be from our future. It That's could be one us. scenario that we want to throw out there. You know? Wow, because if your head isn't swimming enough at this point in the show, <laughs> um, wow, uh, mind blown, um, excellent job. Uh, Mike, any other comments? No, I, this has been excellent, and I hope we can have him on again soon. This is 
would love to hear more. Oh, especially the prehistory. Those are yes. just, uh, but but any, Michael, you can come and, and read the phone book for us. I'm sure it would be fascinating. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> as long as we have illustrations to go with it. Everything right. I do is visual. Yes. You know. And uh, as I said, um, as soon as you do get um, those illustrations up, and I, and I have to say again, as I mentioned in the beginning, Michael has just been so generous with his time and work. Um, my presentations are so much better thanks to the illustrations he has has provided, and um, you're doing such valuable work for ufology. Um, we really are very fortunate to have you with us today. Thank you, Linda, and I'm happy to do it. I'm, I'm happy to do it. I know you are, and that's that's what even makes you more special. So um, we um, we will be signing off in a moment. And uh, Mike, unless you have any other final words, no. Just once again, thank you, Michael, for being with us, and thank you to our our listeners in the Hudson Valley and in the United States and in the, the world around us, because people from all over the world are listening to this podcast. And um, so we're reaching people in different continents, different countries, and it's just great to see the interest out there. It certainly is. All right. Until next time. Good night, everyone. Hudson River Radio.com, your local Rockland County station.